Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Problem Loss's weekly podcast with Colin Lambert and myself, Galen Stott, where we discuss all the latest news from the thick, but let's be honest, predominantly FX markets. Um, <laughs> Colin, some of, some of the biggest, going outside our thick remit, um, some oh, of the no. news <laughs> this week, I know, I know, always dangerous ground for us, but, but they're the, probably the biggest news story in financial markets this week was very much uh, what what happened with the Deutsche announcement. Um, I know you wrote a, uh, a column piece, an opinion piece on that, that that was published today. But for those who haven't read it, could you just kind of outline what your what your kind of perspective on on what happened there is? Yeah, um, I guess the the headline would be this is what happens when everyone tries to be a broker um, rather than a sort of risk player. Um, it's, it's in the equities business mainly. Obviously, the cuts in Deutsche, everyone knows about that, and there's there's plenty of analysis around and plenty of news around around it. Around it, we don't need to go into that. But I just thought it was interesting because we've had a push over the last probably six, seven years on the part of certain FX banks to move away from the risk warehousing, um, you know, risk transfer business. It's nice if they can get it, but they don't really chase it towards more of the agency. And yeah, that's. I guess that's epitomised in the push for algo products that every bank is, you know, is offering, and some non-banks now. So there's this whole push towards the agency model, um, and I kind of look at it and think, well, where's the agency model really grown up? And that's in equities, and there's just competition comes into play when you become a broker. You know, just ask any voice broker. You know, they started. I mean, I, there are there are guys I know. I mean, you know, and they're doing well to hang in there. But there are voice brokers I knew 30 years ago that are still going in the industry, but they're living on a breadline in terms of both business and, frankly, their income. I think a lot of the time, um, because brokerage fees got crushed, they couldn't sustain the business models, and inevitably it led to you know consolidation. Um, I think the same kind of thing happens in equities. You know, Deutsche is sitting there going, well, we're actually running this business that is net costing us money. The level of competition, particularly in the U.S., is absolutely huge. Um, new technology comes into play, and that makes it cheaper for everyone that may have traditionally picked up the phone or even used the platform. There'll be a cheaper platform to use. Um, I just look at it and think this is what happens when everybody tries to go down the fee-generating uh, route, whereas if we have which we do have still in FX, you have a um, a culture where you've got enough people willing to turn around and say, actually, no, I will assume that risk off someone and it will not go straight into the market. So therefore, it becomes they can make their money, I guess, through market moves. Now, I want to stress, I'm not talking about um, you know, making half a pip you know, within like two seconds or even less. I'm talking about actually someone taking the risk on and saying, um, okay, I'm willing to hold this for an hour, maybe two hours, maybe even longer, just because this, this, this holds with my macro view of the world. Um, in equities, you don't really get that. They are pure broken shops, and I think this is signaling the decline of the broken shop. Is, is it the case that, that firms uh, won't take risk or they can't take risks? I mean – you know the constant refrain when I when I talk to people in the market, um, you know whether they're they're competitors or or not. I mean the constant refrain I constantly say is, oh yeah, you know, well of course you know the banks can't take risk anymore. Um, is that yeah. is that actually overblown? Is it the case that they can't take risk, or they just simply are unwilling to? 
I think it's a question of both. Um, I think we do overblow the thing that banks can't take risk. There are bankers. There are banks out there taking significant risk, and there are actually some non-bank firms taking some decent risk as well. Um, so I think we kind of overblow it to a degree. What, what I don't think is in doubt, though, is that there are less of these institutions or less of these market participants out there. And actually, on this note, I should apologise to um, a person who was visiting Sydney this week, and I had a quick beer with them on Wednesday and harangued them on this subject for an hour. Um, so you know who you are. I can only apologise. Um, but don't ask me a question. Don't ask me that sort of question when you got when I've got a beer in my hand. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's there is actually the question of how many people are there out there that know or are comfortable with risk because a lot of the e-trading generation that's now coming through have been have, have basically grown up on the you know this sort of high volume um quasi virtual brokerage model you know you don't charge brokerage to trade but what you're looking to make out of every trade is a small increment which kind of you know is a is a brokerage model in in, in many ways, um, but they've been brought up on that. So the actual idea of saying, okay, we've we've got a strategy. We're talking to our re- the banks in particular have got dozens of researchers and researchers and strategists. Um, they've got a level. The technical analyst guys have got a level. Right when we get there, we are going to assume some risk. I'm not sure how many people are, there are out there that are really comfortable with doing that. Um, you know, the, the chat room scandal kind of cleared out a few of those. And I think, you know, the banks being scared of their own shadow or being seen to be making money out of um, client business is, is a tricky one. You know, the compliance teams are, are overly um, prescriptive on this stuff. I think we need to re, you know, resume a balance there. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. The only thing I would say is that I think it, the market's a healthier place when we do have people willing to sit there and, well, frankly, put their balls on the line at a level. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't, people shouldn't be scared to lose money. And unfortunately, at the moment, you kind of get the feeling then that people are. I mean, is, is, when we talk about risk though, right? I mean, is it, is it basically, you know, a lot easier for the people with the biggest franchise to, to take quote unquote risk? And what I mean by that, right, is, you know, if if two banks, let's say they, they take on the same risk transfer, so they're holding that risk until they can get out of it, right? If you're a, yeah. a huge bank with a big franchise, you, you your odds of being able to get out of that by another client coming in the other direction, say, right, in, yeah. let's say, eight hours' time, is significantly greater than if you have a smaller franchise. So therefore, even though you're taking the same position, the same quote-unquote, that's why I say quote-unquote risk, the actual yeah. risk to the business is very different. Is that well, part I think of the, the, the key issue? We're getting to a place where only the big ones can can really, the biggest franchises can really, you know, are willing to take that risk because it's actually a lower risk for them. I would actually argue it's the other way around. I would say that regional banks are probably told, taking more longer term risk, and partly it's because you know they're existing in you know core competency currency pairs where there's not great liquidity and they have to. Um, I think the bigger the franchise, I think it's an interesting question because I think. You look at it and go, yes, that is the case if you look at it on a theoretical basis. But the chances are, with the bigger franchises, that a customer's going to come in and take the risk off them within a few seconds. It could be thanks to a SKU. It could be thanks to just natural business. And this is part of the reason why we're not actually holding this risk, because they are acting like broken shops. There's buyers and sellers, and they're matching them up. 
that's what an interdealer voice broker did in Spot all those years ago. It's what EBS matching, you know, Hotspot, Fastmatch, other platforms are available. And I love the fact that I used three names that no longer exist there. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping myself up to date. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, these... I, th- I would I would argue it's actually probably you know that model that you described is is the model that exists and that might actually be part of the problem that you know the people are unwilling to take the risk out of the system and sit there and hold it and just and you know okay we're going to go whatever it is fifty sixty hundred units long here um, but we want to wear this for a few hours because our analysis tells us that this is what's going to happen. Um, I'm not sure under the current structure of a lot of places they can really do that because, you know, there's probably permissions, there's, you know, the inquiry with compliance. So this client gave you 60 million euros and you held it for three hours and made 30 points. Why would you do that? Well, because I thought it was going up, you know, but they don't understand that aspect of it. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, the opportunities exist. It was interesting. Mean, Sterling hit. I actually haven't checked it this morning, but Sterling. I think it's, it's cable's higher, but Sterling hit its lowest level. Well, if it hadn't been for the flash crash on January the third this year, Sterling hit its lowest level since April two thousand seventeen. This week, and it's moved like seven or eight percent in the last three months. That's not a bad move. You can actually make some good money on the back of that. But how many people are really looking at it in that sort of in that sort of fashion? You know, you and I discussed this before. The UK political situation with with Brexit looks like an absolute war zone. <laughs> yeah, it's not yeah yeah. <laughs> I managed to change I managed to change my um, uh, words at the last minute there. Um, but it's an absolute war zone that is going to reflect in the currency at some stage. So I think you know the opportunities are there. Um, what we're missing possibly is, is you know, the ability of the bigger banks to actually assume and take on some serious risk. Because, you know, a prop desk is just not allowed. They just can't even, they can't even consider a prop desk. You know, set up yeah. your own hedge fund, that's how you do that. Um, so, yeah, I... I, but, so I on, on the one hand, on, on the one hand, you're talking about, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily a, a detrimental to the market... Uh, if we don't have anyone taking risk, which which I do agree, and I think the reasons for that are obvious. Um, but the flip side of that is, on the broking side, I mean, as 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 you say, with with brokers, the the money they're making has has collapsed. I mean, surely on the broking side, though, this is good news for for the clients. Um, it could be, it could be. I mean, the only thing I would say, I mean. Yes, it would be at face value, but if liquidity is badly undermined by the fact that everybody, nobody wants to make a price or assume some risk, and everyone wants to you know, chop and change their, you know, get their risk out within seconds, this is how you get – look at the US equity market. I mean, you know, due to the geographical location, I wake up every morning, and the news at you know, 6.30 is talking about how the Dow Jones is up one and a half down two and a half, up one and a half, up three, down three, down four percent every day. Um, could you imagine trying to execute large tickets into that? Because that's that's basically what happens when you have just a bunch of brokers and agency brokers executing um, client trades. It's what it's what happens in the crypto markets. You know, look at Bitcoin. 
the minute someone tries to do something sizable, the market runs away and you get multiple percentage moves. Um, we're talking about now impacting hedges who don't want these multiple percentage moves. They certainly don't want to trigger them um, because I think this, this market model brings a slippage. And, you know, slippage is the enemy of good execution. There's a bad right, so, if ever there wasn't one. <clears throat> but, but when I, so, so when I was kind of first doing financial journalism, talking about risk, someone told me that, that risk is like, you know, it's like energy. You can move it around. You can change its form. You can move around the system. But you, the one thing you can't really do is actually get rid of it, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like because the market makers aren't taking risks, there is no risk. The risk is just being pushed elsewhere. And in this case, we're talking about you're talking about kind of the hedges. So the clients, you know, they take an algo and they take on the risk themselves. I mean, what's what's wrong with the model where, yeah, the the the, the client side assumes the risk, or as you said, there are still some people taking risk out there. Or if they don't want to take that risk, then they pay that premium for to find someone who can take risk. What's wrong with that model? That is the interesting question, of course, is in the fact that, you know, um, there are people – I was actually talking to somebody this week about the sort of LIBOR thing and the risk-free rates and about there's no curve. And this person quite rightly turned around to me and said, well, actually, um, if you're a hedger, do you need a curve? Because there there are plenty of banks out there that have the balance sheet and willingness to make you a price so you know what your rate will be going forward. Um, yeah, they will make you a three-month or a six-month price. Um, the problem we have here is that if I'm a corporate or I'm an asset manager, my job is to manage other, um, you know, other assets or to hedge my exposures. I'm not there to trade foreign exchange. I'm not there to assume FX market risk. If I've got to sell, you know, 600 um, Aussie, that's a bad example, 600 Kiwi then that's going to take me the best part of my day. I'm meant to be doing other things as, as in, in the corporate treasury. I'm meant to be managing you know, um, funding and you know, what's my cash flow um, portfolio is looking like. I, I, I don't want to be worried about the, you know, oh, I've got to sell 600 Kiwi in the next 10 minutes. Oh, sorry, in the next um, 10 hours. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to do it really unsophisticatedly because I'm only a corporate treasurer, and with no disrespect to those people, this is not their core competency. Um, the market's going to see it, and it's going to end up costing me another 10, 20, 30 points. Who knows? I don't, I don't see that being a beneficial model to anybody. Um, and as I said recently, you know, when we're talking about buy side becoming market makers, I can't wait for the first asset manager to turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, sorry, investors. We, we underperformed our benchmark by half a percent, which to them is like a, you know, the Grand Canyon. Um, we did it because we got wiped out making a price in dollar yen. Or we had, a, we had an execution in dollar round went wrong. I don't see the benefit to anyone from that. And this is where I think the FX market historically has done a really good job um, around uh, you know, risk absorption. And it worries me that this capacity is still being reduced and not, not showing any signs of a comeback. And to go full circle, Deutsche Bank's equities business effectively is a, in a different market is a reflection of that sort of move. That's where this move ends up in my mind. And I don't think it's healthy, as witnessed by the um, the events of this week. Um, you know, just before we move on, actually, I mean, just to balance up, so everyone hates me in the market. Um, I got a bit of heat over my comment a few weeks ago about um, would anyone notice if some of the non-bank market makers disappeared? Um, I, I also, I'm now going to argue, is anyone going to notice if Deutsche Bank disappears from equities markets? 
because there's plenty of other people out there that will do the job for them. It's called competition, it's called brokerage, it's called technology. Yeah, we move on. That's the way the world goes. Um, and moving on, um, you know, I mentioned there portfolio or cash management. You wrote a piece about a survey City had done this week um, around the corporate treasurer's expectations. There were the usual um, fears in there. I, I don't think it sort of said anything particularly um, revelatory. Something that did catch my eye, a couple of things, was that in spite of everyone's efforts to sell them structures and, use, and promote the use of options, including regulators, as you know, because they're listed and they're going to be cleared, the majority of customers still use spot and forwards and yeah. not options. And the other one is so, so you know the other one is also that um, they struggle with their FX exposures in some emerging markets. Two questions for you: Is innovation dead? That's a general philosophical question. And um, where's the disconnect here? Because we're told liquidity is fine for customers. So, so to answer the first question, um, innovation isn't dead. It's just <laughs> happening very, very slowly, um, according okay. to the survey. So, so the, 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 there is actually a segment in the survey which looks at, um, at basically different technologies and, and uh, like kind of innovative new technologies and what the focus was, right? So out of the the ones they list, the the ones that they're they're least excited about at the moment is DLT, twenty four seven instant payments and open banking. The mid section, okay. which kind of you know twenty to fifty percent said that they were focused on, was cloud architecture and big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, and then the the new technologies that, that most of them, over 50% said they were focused on, is uh, robotic process automation and APIs. Um, right. Now, the the hurdles to the to getting these technologies in, um, the main ones were, were largely cited as the in, integrating these technologies and the cost. Now, now talking to the team at City about all of this, um, they they said that basically what seems to be happening is that they have they have teams looking at all these technologies and how they can work and how they can adopt them. Um, but right now, those teams are still working in parallel to the actual treasury. So it right. doesn't sound like any of this is, is that close to being implemented anytime soon. The other interesting thing with the technology, and we've, we've written about this before on the corporate side, is that basically none of their systems that they have talk to each other. Yeah. Their, their, their TMSs aren't integrated with their accounting systems, which aren't integrated with their bank platforms, which aren't integrated. Nothing's integrated. Um, so that's the, there's a big fragmentation of technology. Um, lots of them have TMS systems that actually not everyone can access, so like only the central um, treasury can access or only like certain regional ones. So that's another fragmentation mm -hmm. disconnect there, making things harder for them. Um, Although the only thing on that, though, Gavin, I would say is that a lot of – time this is actually down to the control function because you know they they want a permission you know a lot of the systems that we were you know, we were shown even 10 15 years ago around the corporate treasury were about allowing the central treasury to control what the regional treasurers can see and can't see because it's hard to actually maintain you know a business structure when you've got someone 6000 miles away isn't it yeah absolutely um, yeah okay so, so those are some some of the 
the tech challenges. Also, um, lots of, according to the survey, a lot of firms have um, TMS systems, but they're not using it as part of their risk management process. There's still a fair amount of manual processing in there. Um, there's still a lack of automation. So I, mean, I think also I did get the sense talking to some of the city staff that a lot of these numbers that we're seeing on the um, survey are fairly static. But they do this survey yeah. um, every couple of years. And a number of times I'd stop them when we were going through the report and say, oh, well, how did that compare to last year and, and, and did that differ? And even the options piece, I said, okay, so 46% of permission to use options. How does that kind of compare to, to when you did this previously? And it was around about the same. Mm. Um, well, that's so, so, but then that's to my point of that corporate treasuries are there to literally just fund the company and make sure the finances run efficiently. They're not, they're not there to sort of, they're, they're not a huge investment zone for the company. You know, if I'm making computers, I want to invest in my production line, not in the bloke that has to move money around the world. So I don't, I, I'm not surprised it doesn't change. I, I, you know, they're, they're, I, I'm not sure it ever will change. But maybe it should. I mean, when you look at some of mm, the, yeah. the, the challenges, I mean, particularly with, when, like, you just have to look at some of the geopolitical stuff now with, Brexit, trade wars, et cetera, potential disruptions to supply chains, right? On the, the currency side, they can have a big impact for a lot of firms. And being able it's to not at the really moment. manage that effectively. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that is. <laughs> but to your point, no, absolutely. I mean, absolutely it does. Um, although I wonder if we do get into a world where we sit there doing not a lot um, and then we suddenly have a massive move. Does that really does it help if corporate treasurers more actively hedging? They're just going to have to look at it and go, look, that's where the market was. These things happen. Um, the execution piece, I think, is is interesting for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think because it's been a relatively simple function in the past. Yeah, we're trying to get people interested in these new technologies, um, and I think there is a, a real benefit for a lot of them in there. I just think that's really, really hard yards getting them to actually do it. Um, you know, you look at this week, um, there's uh, reports and buzz out there that Truex, the interest rate swaps exchange that launched with a massive fanfare a couple of years ago, you're going to, you know, change the interest rate swap market. Um, they've suddenly decided not going to do interest rate swaps anymore. They're going to do crypto. Now, that is maybe the get out of jail free card for any platform. But that I've tells seen a few of those, yeah. Again. Exactly. That tells me the same thing, that um, the customers, the people they needed to trade on this model, are going like, I don't want to trade on that model. I'm happy trading bilaterally with my, with my banks predominantly. Um, and secondly, the banks are going, well, actually, we're quite happy hedging through our normal mechanisms of Bloomberg and TradeWeb. You know, you're trying to disrupt the industry, but the end customer, you know, the corporates that you're just describing, don't really want it disrupted. And I think, you know, FX swaps, we, we've been asking for a long while, when is that going to actually become a more modern market? Well, as, as someone pointed out in our Frankfurt conference, it's not broken for the customers, so they're not pushing for it. And, and that, to me, becomes the biggest barrier for innovation. What, satisfied customers? Customers are already satisfied, yeah. They're not looking at this in a sophisticated enough fashion to think, yeah, I could save myself, you know, you know half of 1% or whatever on, on, on my operations. Um, at this moment in time, they're not looking at that. Maybe I, I think to your point is a good one. Maybe they should be looking at it. 
Um, yeah, what's the uh, what's the, the Ford quote about? If you'd ask people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is this. But I think the problem is this is just a very very small aspect of um, a corporate world. Um, the, the if you ask any corporate manufacturer about innovation, they're going to be looking at the product that you know, the product set that they're in, and, and maybe a few derivatives of that. Um, you know, I hate to tell the listeners of this podcast, but to most of the world, money's boring. You take that back, Colin. <laughs> oh, wouldn't do without it, got to say. <laughs> but, yeah, I look at it and go, money's boring. You know, it's, um, yeah, and to these guys, innovation to, to them is yeah, the new great idea. Yeah. Getting back to your other question on NDF. Um on, well, on EM, so so a lot well, of EM, yes, yeah, so it might, might not be NDFs. Yeah, it may, it may not be NDFs necessarily. So, so the statistic there was that eighty-two um, percent of respondents said they have exposures outside G10. Um, yet seventy-eight percent said that they either hedge emerging market and, and G10 exposures the same, or essentially just don't hedge the EM at all. Um, now, mm. kind of reason why that's a little bit interesting is firstly because. One one percentage uh, that has not been static is the number is the exposure that firms have to non G10 or to emerging market currencies. I mean, the, despite all the the trade friction recently, right, the corporate global balance sheet has continued to expand, going into more markets. Mm. The world, the, the pace of of globalization might have slowed, but it's still growing, right. So even yeah. though exposures to EM are up, the amount of hedging of these. Uh, has not gone up with it. Now, the the reasons were given. the The main reason was that it's uh, that it's hedging costs um, are prohibitive. Um, but the second biggest reason was a lack of liquidity. Now, the reason you're probably getting that that disconnect that we talked about is um, <laughs> for, the, for the same reason you get it even in non EM. I mean, the the if you ask the the LPs, they'll tell you. Liquidity is better than ever. If you ask the platforms, it will tell you liquidity is better than ever on their platform, obviously. Um, mm. There's a bunch of people who have a vested interest. Um, the, the other thing may simply be um, the, the size that some of these corporates need to hedge in. That's why liquidity is difficult. Like I'm, sure, I'm sure, you know, with a lot of the, the market in smaller, you know, short-dated, smaller amounts, there probably is plenty of liquidity um mm. but some of these corporates you know they might be just putting on one you know great huge trade every quarter or something and you'd go and market and try and do that and that's going to be a nightmare yeah i mean i i yeah <clears throat> I, I think your first point there's right i think we're just being we're being spun because these people have clearly got an issue with it. And there was something a little while back when um, the JP Morgan survey wasn't on, yeah. on customers. And, the, and yeah, then their, that, their number one concern was liquidity. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, was even just generally. Yeah. And I think – so to, to my point, I think I would argue that I think this highlights something I just touched on earlier, the lack of a forward curve. Um, there's not a great deal of liquidity out past one month. In emerging markets – you know, NDF volumes um, are in the one month, and they're on EBS. And to last week's podcast, this is probably one of the uh, the um, opportunities that this 24 exchange by Dmitry Galanov and Paul Mild et al. is actually going to 
target. Um, you know, the stuff beyond the one month for real for real hedges. So yeah, liquidity wise for that, there's 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 there is probably is a problem. Um, to go back to the thing, uh, <laughs> this is risk. If a customer wants to do a large ticket, there will be a price for it. You know, there should be a price for it. It should be a reasonable price for it. It shouldn't be some of the stupid prices you hear quoted where it's like, you know, 60 points wide on the market that might move 20 points on this. Um, <clears throat> there's a reasonable price there. But at the moment, too many banks, their their solution is for their for this corporate looking to hedge a, a, a large ticket is, here's my algo. Um, now, partly it's because they believe they can execute more efficiently and make it cheaper for the client. But that means that client is taking on the market risk which is not what they're there for. That is the job of the intermediary, the bank. Um, and they're not doing it. They're, they're pushing their algo at the expense um, of, of, of a decent risk transfer function. Now, their pricing is probably wide because, A, the machine's making the price and the machine is risk-averse. Um, B, there's no real risk-takers, perhaps, um, on the desks, although in emerging markets, I would argue there would be. Um, or C, um, the bank's structure will not allow the, that trading investor to assume that risk. Or D, all three. You know, it's just, I, I don't understand it because these, this is predictable business. You know they're not going to be going elsewhere unless it is the execution style. Don't get me wrong. If a corporate customer is trying to call, you know, like 10 banks and ask them for a, a you know, three-month outright, you know, dollar rand um, and hit them all, then that's market disrupting. And you don't want to call that you don't want to call that business. But if they're going to you on a you, you alone basis, you know, so maybe the corporates need to look at their execution styles. But then equally, maybe the liquidity providers need to step up and and um, actually back up some of the uh, spin that they keep on giving us. I doubt either will happen. Speaking of spin, um, Colin, I know that you have um, some thoughts on some of the platform volumes that we reported on this week. Um, yeah, I mean, nothing too serious. I'm just enjoying the um, the spin that we get from some of them. Particularly, my great one is, it varies month by month. Um, oh, yeah, we're up 8% from last month. Forgetting the 16% down year on year. That's for the uh, that's for the reader to find out for themselves, or the journalist to find out for themselves, which is fine. Um, or the next month, we're up 7% year on year. Um, forgetting that actually they're down 2% month on month. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's a few out there. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of my favorites is coming to an end. Uh, Deutsche Börse, bless you. You've spent the last year talking about how you're up 16% year on year. Um, but that's because for the last year, you've been including GTX numbers, which you didn't include the previous year. And if you actually add them yeah. in, then generally speaking, it's, it's roughly flat and that's fine. Um, they're going well. I think that kind of reflects 360T's, um, profile still um they're very much it's a good steady um high volume business but mainly in the forwards you know okay. a lot, they've clearly got they've clearly got a lot of hedges on there um because the volume numbers are fairly steady and i think this is why they are looking to expand into the you know to get that club to maybe get more spot business into it so that they can actually take advantage of the swings and roundabouts of of, of yeah. market volumes um I think FX Spotstream are just like going gangbusters and all credit to them. And I, I do like the model. I've said this before on this podcast, but I was quite quite impressed with the little sneaky line that, oh, yeah, well, compared to um, CBOE Hotspot, you know, we're up blah, blah, blah. And I think, well, yeah, but CBOE Hotspot doesn't include forwards in their numbers. 
um, which I thought was quite interesting. There was a couple saying, "Oh yeah, you know, we're uh, we're we're this month on month and we're that year on year." And I think, yeah, well, why don't you just say, you know, it's up month on month and down year on year? There's there's this urge to put a positive spin on everything, which kind of oh, bothers be, me a bit. I have to say. To be to be fair, um, uh, CBO EFX are guilty of that as well. I've been to their uh, their yearly kind of press briefings where they'll give you kind of like a little book of information and a lot of. Well, I'd say probably no one else in the room is kind of FX specific. So you get the FX yeah. page, and they'll tell you, they'll show you a graph, being like, "Oh, our market, our market share is this up certain percentage year on year," and then you look at how many platforms they actually included in like the top platforms, and it's like, "Yeah, well, of course your market share is going to be huge if you just don't count some of the platforms on there." <laughs> I think I think what we're saying to everybody is that the rest of the world might not be on to you, but we are. Um, <laughs> if we if we were a certain um, incumbent of a what is it sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, we'd be screaming yeah. fake news now. Um, oh but yeah, no, we we won't do that. <laughs> we'll we'll let you Bring go it, just to, just to let you know we're on to you. On which note, um, before they get on to us, which no doubt will come, um, we'll end this week. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Have a good week.